0: Sort of project for the fall, a new sermon series. First Kings and Second Kings are what we're going to be looking at, which for me is just exciting. The historical books are like right in my wheelhouse. As a preacher, narratives, like historical narratives, are my favorite to sort of prepare for and preach. And so I'm really looking forward to going through this for the next little bit, for the foreseeable future, really. And, um, You might notice, oddly, for a study on 1 Kings, we're not beginning in chapter 1, which is usually not a good rule of thumb. You want to start a study on a book of a Bible, it's usually better to begin from, you know, chapter 1. However, we're going to kind of be parachuting in today in chapter 17, and the reason why is because our study on 1 Kings and 2 Kings is going to be really oriented around one particular figure— who we're going to kind of be zeroing in on, a guy named, well, as you see it up there, Elijah the Tishbite, or as many of you guys know him, just the prophet Elijah. His narrative begins in chapter 17, and so that's why we're starting here, is because we want to walk through these chapters in 1 Kings and 2 Kings that have to do with the life and times of Elijah. Now, all of the chapters that we look at, and for instance, there's going to be some that come up really soon in the text that don't necessarily mention him by name, and yet all of it is kind of the, the, the narrative surrounding him, the, that what's happening in the kingdom of Israel while Elijah is ministering, and so that's going to be what we're focusing on, like I said, for the foreseeable future. Depending on if I get in one of those moods where I want to go like two verses at a time, or if I get in one of those moods where I want to take like whole chapters at a time, um, I don't know how long it will take us. But I'm looking forward to learning about his life, understanding what this part of the Bible means, and then most importantly, thinking together about how it points us to Jesus and his gospel, even all the way back in 1 Kings. So without further ado, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand, if you're able, for the reading of the scripture tonight. Like I said, we're in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's up here on the screen. It's in your bulletin, best yet. It's in your Bibles that you brought with you so you can take notes in the margin and underline things. Here's what God's word says. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in these next few moments that you would bless us so that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as well. Lord, allow us to have open ears and open eyes and clear minds to perceive what you're saying through this word, to be challenged by it and to be obedient to it. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. So uh, there's some serious drawbacks to starting in the middle of a book rather than the beginning. There's some serious drawbacks to, as I said earlier, parachuting in, so to speak. And the biggest thing is once you parachute in, you land in chapter 17, you look around and you say, what in the world is going on? I have no idea. Who are these people? Ahab, Elijah. What is happening? Why is, the, why is God so angry at them? Why is he saying that he's going to shut up the heavens and make it where it won't rain? And then probably for many of you, you're saying, what the heck is going on with the crows? These ravens bringing meat and bread and their little claws and beaks and dropping it off for Elijah. What is happening here? We, we've just parachuted in and this is cool and all and I understand it, but there's so much that's very confusing and murky and we need to do some work of painting context and figuring out what's going on. We've got to take a lay of the land and figure out our surroundings. So this opening sermon and the sermon series is kind of backtrack a little bit and do the work. Since we're starting in chapter 17, we need to do the work of sort of uh, getting the lay of the land and figuring out what's happening contextually so we can understand truly and fully what's going on here. So I hope that you'll bear with me today as I try to paint a little bit of that context. So one thing that we have to do first is we need to just take a brief moment to look backwards and try to answer this question. What has gone wrong in Israel to bring them to this point? Obviously something has gone very haywire. God sends his word to Elijah the Tishbite. Who says, it is neither going to rain nor do for years to come unless by my word. That's not good for an agricultural society. Even we understand that a little bit. Living in the Central Valley in California, when it doesn't rain for long stretches of time, like no rain, things go south very quickly. And in a, a society like Israel that was just so tied to the fate of agriculture, it was a huge problem so why has this happened we have to look back to understand kind of where Elijah is at this moment in time in Israel he's ministering in a time that we normally call the two kingdoms period now there was a time in Israel it's the time that most of us think about where we have One unified kingdom. That's the one that we read about with like King David and King Solomon. It was where its borders had expanded. Israel was being blessed by God in amazing ways. But something happens. That will be another story for another day. Where this kingdom is divided in two. And now there is the northern kingdom which retains the name Israel. But the southern kingdom which from then on out is usually referred to as Judah. And yeah, I've got a map here up on the screen so you can see it. There's Israel, the one that's yellow in the north. And then that little circle is its new capital city, which was known as Samaria. And then Judah, which is kind of the former kingdom before it split in two, that has its capital as Jerusalem. The line of David and Solomon stayed with that southern kingdom of Judah. But Israel was sort of the the break-off group. And they had a brand new king and dynasty that comes into being when the kingdom splits in two now this in itself is tragic enough the fact that the united kingdom is split but the most tragic thing of all is what happens after the split the new king of israel a guy whose name is jeroboam he realizes that he has a huge problem on his hands if he wants to have stability and this new northern kingdom of israel He's got to make some changes because there was something in the law of God that would make it very hard to keep a stable new kingdom. And it's this, that for all faithful Israelites, they were required to go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifice, to worship God, to follow the feast days that were prescribed in the law. Jeroboam can't have his people constantly going down to Jerusalem, which is now enemy territory, He doesn't want his people constantly sojourning there, spending their money in Judah, being influenced by Judah, being wooed maybe even back into this old kingdom. He realizes his kingdom can't survive if that happens, or at least that's what he thinks. So he proposes a plan that he puts into action. And the plan is to take two cities, one in the way north and one right on the border, and create For lack of a better term, alternative worship sites. He builds altars at these places. And he says, instead of going to Jerusalem, people, go to these places instead. Places that happen to be inside his borders. One of them is way up high in the north. It's a city named Dan. Where he creates a new altar. But then one of them is right on the border. Almost as if to intercept people who were on their way to Jerusalem. And kind of turn them aside on a detour. And say worship here instead. It's a city named Bethel. And both at Dan and Bethel he creates new altars. And then to top it off. He does something to try to entice the Israelites to go there. And he reaches way back into their history. And he finds a snare that had always been a problem for them he creates two golden calves and puts them at those altars, one at Dan and one at Bethel, so that they would turn aside and worship there. Golden calf, I use that term to take your mind back to the story of the Exodus and after the people came out of Israel. More precisely, what Jeroboam made were these golden bulls, but the idea, the sentiment is the same. He's trying to do something that will entice the people to go worship instead. And he sets up those false altars, and he sets the northern kingdom of Israel on this crash course of idolatry and disobedience to God. Now, those events happened generations before what we read about today. Generations before the the life and times of Elijah. And yet... What he did in setting up those false altars set Israel on this course of just snowballing and more and more idolatry, more and more disobedience, more and more distance from God so that generations later when Elijah comes on the scene, he encounters a king now named King Ahab who has inherited all that disobedience that started with Jeroboam and he has done it even worse than any came before him in fact in in the verses that preceded what we read tonight there's this phrase that says king ahab was guilty of more wickedness than all of the kings that preceded him and the reason why that's the truth is because he took sort of this uh this trend toward disobedience and idolatry and he went so much deeper and further with that for one He creates a marriage alliance with a foreign power by marrying a princess. Her name was Jezebel. (laughs) Yeah, well said. Jezebel apparently agrees to this marriage and to come live in Israel on the condition that she's able to bring her religion with her. And the priests and prophets of her false god with her. And not only that, King Ahab doesn't just allow her to practice her foreign religion, but he actually adopts it. He builds a temple to her God in the capital city of Samaria. And he and she together begin this systematic rooting out of prophets of the God of Israel and replacing them with prophets of this Canaanite religion, in particular the God she worshipped whose name was Baal. This was the Ahab that Elijah speaks to at the beginning of our text. And so maybe now we're beginning to understand why it is that the first word that God gives to Elijah is a word of judgment saying, it's not going to rain because of the wickedness of my people that have turned against me. So we're starting to get our bearings a little bit. We see kind of what's preceded all of this and brought us to this place. But now let's ask another question, though, to try to get the lay of the land a little bit more. And it's what we have up here on the screen. The judgment that God pronounces is the judgment of taking the rain away. There's going to be no rain or dew in the land. But my question is why? Why did he choose that? Especially, this is such a broad, general judgment that affects everybody, and all the animals even, in the land. Why does God go this route? Well, there's a simple answer to this, and a more nuanced answer. The simple one is simply because God is doing what he said he would do. Way back at the beginning, when God brings his people out of Egypt and forms them as his people of Israel, he tells them repeatedly... That if they turn away from him and, and worship false gods, there would be consequences. And one of the chief consequences that comes up over and over and over again is that he would make it so that there would be no rain that falls in the land. There would be drought. There's multiple places where we see this, but I have one up on the slide just as an example. Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 17. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside And serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So that's one example of many. Of what God had told them would be the consequences of them turning away to worship false gods. So when Elijah comes on the scene and says, There will be neither rain nor dew for these years except by my word. He's simply making it clear that God is following through on what he said would happen. God is faithful to his word. Even when it means consequences for sin. But, like I told you, there's a more nuanced answer to this too. That might be the more kind of intriguing of the two answers, and it has to do with the nature of this false god that Jezebel and Ahab and the rest of the Israelites were beginning to turn to. I mentioned a second ago that his name is Baal, although technically it's Baal, B-A-apostrophe all, you know, but I'm from the south, so I just say Baal and, you know, deal with it. So... This god was part of the pantheon. The Canaanite religion was polytheistic. There were many different gods with many different functions. A god of the mountains, a god of the forest, a god of the sea. In that pantheon, Baal was the god of the storm. When you heard lightning, according to the Canaanites, or excuse me, when you saw lightning, you were seeing his power. When you heard thunder, you were hearing his voice. And most importantly for us, When you received rain on the land, you were receiving his blessing. There were entire myths built around the life cycle of Baal that would uh, sort of signify the rainy season and the dry season. In the rainy season, he was fighting and winning battles. And in the dry season, he was going and and sort of uh, restocking his army and his weaponry. This entire mythology built around this God, the one who brought the rain, supposedly. Supposedly is big, right? Because as you and I know, and as the Israelites should have known, Baal doesn't bring the rain. The God of the universe. The Lord of Israel, the one who created the heavens and the earth, who controls all things in it. He's the one who controls the weather, the wind, the storms, the rain. Not some false Canaanite God. And so when Elijah pronounces this judgment upon the people of Israel, what he's doing is saying, yes, God is being faithful to what he said would happen all those years ago. But he's also saying, listen, You have given yourself to a God thinking that you can control or manipulate him to make it bring rain. But he doesn't control rain. He doesn't even exist. The God of Israel does. He's the one that gives the blessing of rain. And this judgment is a sharp reminder to God's people of where true power actually lies. Not in the false gods of our making but with the God of the universe who created us and controls all things by the word of his power. Y'all, this is going to be a theme that we see over and over and over again in our study of Elijah, in our study of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, where there is this clash of culture, this clash of ideas, where God's people are saying, we want to give ourselves to this false god that we think will give us blessing or prosperity, or in this case, rain. And we're going to do all we can to appease this God and give ourselves to him so that these things will happen. And the Lord has to say, no, those false gods don't control any of that. I do. What is it going to take for me to get your attention, to bring you back not only to true and right worship of the one true God, but also worship to the one that can actually give you the things your heart desires? And we're going to be talking about this in the context of ancient Israel 3,000 years ago. And yet, it is as true for us today as it was for them back then. We are constantly giving ourselves to idols, to other gods, little g, counterfeit gods that we think will make us happy. That we think will give us success. That we think will make us prosper. And the one true God is saying, no. That can't give you happiness and purpose. Only I can. And sometimes the things that we think of, this angry God punishing people and being capriciously cruel, is actually him showing severe mercy to bring people back and say, this is a dead end. And I will do whatever it takes to get your attention to prove that to you. We're going to see that theme over and over in the weeks to come. For now, I just want to put it on your radar. We'll be talking about it more as we walk through these chapters. But I want us to prepare our hearts to see what God might challenge in our life. To say, you thought this God would bring you the rain. But he can't. Only I can. All right. So we parachuted in gotten a feel of what happened to bring us to this point we've gotten a feel now of of what it means for God to withhold the rain and how that's actually a theological statement really in the end we've got one final question to hit before we're done tonight and it has to do with our lead character Elijah the Tishbite (laughs) I see the subtitle up there who is this guy seriously this guy just, I mean, we started reading and all we have is now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe said to Ahab. Surely there must have been before this some context about who his family is, where he, you know, more specifically where he came from, like his origin story. No, there actually isn't. What we started reading tonight is the first appearance of Elijah and all we know about him is what we just read from this little verse. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab. That is strange, y'all. Like, compared to other figures in the Bible that are this consequential, usually we have long drawn out explanations of their family, their tribe, how precisely they received their calling. Like, think of Samuel the prophet, for instance. Last time we were doing historical books at church was a few years ago. We did a sermon series on 1 Samuel. And we talked a lot about the um, circumstances of Samuel's birth. His mother, how she prayed, and then how she dedicated him to temple service. And how he, as a, as a child, served with Eli, the, the priest, and how he heard the calling of God even as a young man. And we learned all these things about sort of, you know, quote unquote, his origin story. And by contrast with Elijah, we have none of that. Just a guy that literally appears out of nowhere and starts throwing haymakers. We know that he's from this city called Tishbe, which, um, spoiler alert, we have no idea, like, exactly where that is. Archaeologists are like, I don't know. It's in Gilead, so that means it's on the other side of the Jordan River. But Tishbe is this really mysterious place that nobody really knows much about. We don't know if being a Tishbite has much significance at all. Really, the main thing we know about this guy is his name and what his name means. Get this. Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. My God is the Lord. How about that? For this context of a group of people that are struggling with going after false gods, this guy shows up on the scene, and his name means, my God is the Lord. That's pretty much the extent of what we know about the background of Elijah. So, we're parachuting in today, in chapter 17, but the irony is, we know just as much about this guy Uh, parachuting in to the text as even people that may have been studying this for years with the chapters leading up to it. He literally shows up out of nowhere. What do you think that means? What do you think the significance of that is? I've came across a few different options this week, all that were interesting and good. But there's one that I've been drawn to for a while now. Quite truthfully, it's the reason that me and Brian even chose to do a sermon series on Elijah. And it has to do with sort of a possible explanation of this that we find in the New Testament. So James chapter 5, the very end of the epistle of James. James is talking about prayer. And the effectiveness of prayer in the believer's life. And he says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James is referencing the story that we read tonight. Although he, he gets a little bit ahead, and forgive me for that if you're like, oh, man, that's a spoiler. Yeah, it's it's true, you know, as we get deeper, we're going to see that Elijah does pray to the Lord and it begins to rain again. But even though this is referencing our text tonight with the rain piece, what I want you to see is the very first phrase. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a person like us. He's not an angel, I'm not an angelic being. He's not a a mutant with superpowers and a cape. He's not even, he's a prophet, but he's not even the kind of prophet that we put up on a pedestal and say, wow, look at his holiness and righteousness and how godly he is and how much different he is for all human beings. No, according to James, Elijah was just an ordinary guy who trusted God. And I think that part of the reason why we have just scant details about Elijah and his background and his calling and his family is because the author of 1 Kings, Holy Spirit-inspired, is wanting to make the same point. You're going to think that Elijah is some superhero, some person that's way different from you, in a class of his own, in a league of his own, some person that is so holy and righteous uh, that you could never do anything like you saw in his life and ministry, and yet the reality is, both in James and even in the details of our text, the Bible is telling you the opposite, that he's just an ordinary guy who trusted God, and God used him to do mighty things. Maybe that's the story of the Bible, if we're really willing to look closely. Not of a bunch of heroes that God says, look at how amazing you are, therefore I'll use you to do my work but just regular people who love and trust God. And mighty things happen because of it. And and let me speak clearly here. They don't do mighty things. God does mighty things through them. There are going to be multiple times in the Elijah narrative where we see the very humanness of Elijah. And we're going to be reminded that he's just an ordinary guy. But there will also be times where we see Fire falling from heaven, where we see, uh, you know, I want to say high-speed chases. They rode donkeys back then, so it probably wasn't that high-speed. But chases and running for your life and this huge clash between the gods and fire falling from heaven, there's going to be times where we are tempted once again to see him as a superhero, nothing like us. But he's just a guy like me. You, saying, I trust the Lord, and I want to be used by him. It it dawned on me up in paradise this morning. I was preaching, and like I I feel foolish for not thinking of this before. But all of a sudden, I was connecting the dots between what we're talking about today and what we've been talking about all this summer leading up to now about evangelism. And how so many people, I feel like, come away with any talk about evangelism, and their, their takeaway is that, ah, it's not for me. That's for the serious Christians, for the, the really holy and godly people, the really good communicators, the really outgoing extroverts. I'm not a person like that. Yeah, you know what? You are a person that can do mighty works of God. You are a person that can have his power work through you. You don't have to be this extraordinary, incredibly designed person. Just be an ordinary dude or gal who loves God. And watch what he does. Maybe the biggest takeaway that we'll have from this whole study is, God, what do you want to do through me? Bring revival to Chico? Call people to repentance in a way that's meaningful and powerful. Show the glory of God in just a mundane, regular life like mine. What is it going to be, God? But I see through him, Elijah the Tishbite, that you delight in using the ordinary to do the extraordinary. I don't know if that's the only takeaway from the scant details of Elijah's life. But it's the one that spoke to me the most this week the one that I want to leave you with. We still have lots to study in the days to come about the life and ministry of Elijah, but we leave it here for today, setting the stage for what comes next. Pastor Brian will pick it up next week. He's going to start in verse 7. I stopped my text a little short because I think that one's going to fit better with what he'll be speaking about next week. But God bless us as we study his word. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that you would allow us to see clearly your power at work in the life of this ordinary man, not to idolize him, not to be taken away with him, but to be fascinated by you and how you use ordinary people to do your powerful, miraculous work. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you delight in using people like us to change the world, to build the kingdom, to see the gospel go forth. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.